0: Hello and welcome to the Formula Scout podcast. Formula Scout is home to news, features, podcasts, and more from the world of junior single-seater racing, tracking the progress of future Grand Prix stars. My name is Craig Willard, and we are here to discuss the top Formula 2 drivers driving um, under the Ferrari Driver Academy banner, three of whom will be making their first um, FP1 appearances in the coming Grand Prix. Joining me today is Joshua Satil, Elliot Wood, Bethany Waring, and a special guest, Jack Benyon. Jack, if you don't know, is in charge of all things America based for the race, but is obviously not here to talk about the road to Indy, although we may have to get Ben back on in a later date to discuss that. For those who don't know, Jack has plenty of experience within the Formula 2 and FIA Formula 3 paddocks and is in as good a position as any to discuss this week's big topic. So, Jack. How are you, first of all? And uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you, you ended up being in, in Formula 2 and Formula 3 in, in recent years.
1: Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's nice to be uh, a part of something uh, like this. I think you guys do a great job of covering junior single-seaters all over the world, so uh, keep on going with that. And yeah, for me, um, I've had a very varied uh, um, journey in my uh, motorsport career. It's taken me down lots of different disciplines lots of different paths but um, I covered GP2 and uh, Formula 2 in 2018 and 2019 for Autosport and Motorsport.com as well so um, yeah and just continue to keep in touch this season as well still uh, work with some of the teams and some of the drivers involved in in the championship as well so it's um, you know obviously the the top place where you know anyone aiming to get to Formula One goes these days, and uh, we've got some—we've uh, got a good crop of drivers this year that I'm sure we're going to uh, discuss over the, the next uh, few uh, minutes or hours. If I've got anything to say about it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we won't keep—we uh, won't keep you for too long, hopefully. But yes, we'll we'll crack straight on with um, with, with these drivers uh, at this weekend's uh, Eiffel Grand Prix, which is sadly not called the Eiffel Renan. Uh, Mick Schumacher and Callum Eilert will will make their F1 debuts. Uh, F- Uh, in FP1 with Alfa Romeo and Haas, respectively, Uh, while Robert Schwartzman will make his debut at the season-ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix of Alfa. All three of them are in title contention. Um, But we'll we'll start with uh, Mick Schumacher, because he's the championship leader. Uh, 191 points this this season, uh, two wins by feature races, uh, 10 podiums, which is four more than anybody else. So I I think the big question I want to put to you first, Jack, is... Is Schumacher ready for an F1 drive?
1: It's been such a roller coaster career for him, hasn't it? And the second half of his Formula 3 Championship winning year, you know, he looked totally dominant, totally assured against uh, a pretty good crop of drivers, I'd say, and um, had some good teammates that year as well. And, um, his career momentum kind of uh, stalled a little bit, didn't it? When he got to F2, I think people were expecting just that little bit more from him as the reigning F3 champion. And I think he struggled to, to settle in at Premier in that first year. I don't think, um, I think he'd be the first person to admit that he didn't get the most out of the car that year. And there were plenty, mis- plenty of mistakes. Obviously, over the course of a season, you, your team's going to make mistakes as well. But I think Mick would be the first one to admit it didn't go the way he wanted. But he's bounced back this year. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to, Debate his uh, his shortcomings and his his, uh, his his very real ability as well. At the same time, um, you know, for me, I think the question isn't really does he deserve an F one drive. It's when he's going to get one because he's such an important driver. His name, um, you know, his marketability. He's just so so important for Formula One, and they're desperate to have him there. He's a he's a no brainer to have on the grid. Um, I think what we have seen is over the second half of the. The F2 season is we've started to see that level of consistency at the front of the pack that will, you know, make people believe that he can be a Formula 1 driver and a, a very good one. Um, you know, Mick has made mistakes while running at the front of the field, you know, quite regularly, to be honest. I mean, thinking back as early as uh, as Baku in his first season where he probably would have been on for a win there or at least a, a strong first podium and threw that away with the spin coming onto the straight. Um, and then, yeah, you know, s- since then we've seen brilliant drives in in Budapest, defending from from Matsushita for his first win. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, second half of this, se- it was a bit shaky to start this season. Obviously, I had the mistake in Austria as well. But second half of this season, he's been, um, you know, looking at the stats, he's been just about as consistent as any of those front runners. And we've seen um, very high peaks from those front runners, uh, but we haven't seen anyone really match mix consistency, especially over the sort of two thirds second half of the season. So, you know, I think on merit, he's doing enough at the minute to to warrant a Formula One drive. And like I said, I don't really think it's a question of uh, does he deserve it? I think it's a question of, uh, you know, when he'll get it. Yeah.
0: And uh, this, I have to think that uh, 2021, uh, probably with, with Alfa Romeo is looking like the like the, the sure bet, uh, if you will. Um, Alfa Romeo obviously um, has two very different seats. One of them is operated by the Sauber part of the, the business and the other one is operated by Ferrari. Um, the, the Ferrari owned seat at the moment is currently occupied by Antonio Giovanazzi, who has uh, not particularly set the world alight I think is uh, fair to say um, at the moment. So I want to bring Josh in um, at this point because I, I want to ask uh, how difficult it is to, to have such a, a good consistent run in, in a level as high as F Uh, because you you don't see the the sort of thing particularly often especially in a field that is really really well
3: yeah it's it's definitely very very difficult for for any driver and you know no driver has more pressure on their shoulders than than mick schumacher so it has been really really impressive um i actually did a a fair bit of preparation for once for this episode uh plenty of notes and, and microsoft excel spreadsheets making sure that I didn't go over the, the maximum amount of columns needed. <laughs> um, and then with, um, <laughs> but, and what I realized um, from doing that was that although Schumacher has made a, quite a few errors this season, um, compared to Eilert and some of his other kind of front-running rivals, his mistakes haven't quite been as significantly uh, costly um, as his rivals. I mean, the, the biggest one, as Jack mentioned, was the crash in the first race of the season. That possibly cost him about 25 points when you factor in the, you know, the sprint race as well. Um, but thereafter, for example, you know, crashing with, with Schwarzman and Silverstone. In the end, that actually only lost him three points. Uh, nice. And then his crash in Monza qualifying put him way down on the grid, but then he was able to come through and win. So no points lost there. Uh, Magello as well, he crashed out, but still got a really good, uh, decent amount of points. Uh, and and not too many other sort of uh, points lost already for his mistake. So he's he's been able to sort of minimise the... The errors when it matters. He has made mistakes in qualifying in particular. Um, but in the races, he does tend to get the job done. Um another minor one just in Barcelona where he went off while while leading on the alternative strategy. A few points lost there. Um but other than that, he's definitely done a really, really good job of of maximizing everything. And particularly in the second half of the season, he has managed to break clear. I mean, this was a, a wide open title fight at the, the midpoint of the season. But really since Spa, he's very much turned it into you know, something of a two-horse race. I mean, there's still plenty of time to go and a lot could change, um, but he has been able to to transform him his driving and also transform the, the shape of the championship. Mm, yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, I want to bring Elliot in, um, talk a little bit, because Schumacher's in his sixth year of car racing. He did two years in Formula 4, two years in European Formula 3, and is now doing his second year in Formula 2. Um, do you think, Elliot, that it's not having a particularly standout first year in in any of those categories goes against Schumacher. And do you think that if it was any other driver that we were talking about, one with a a lesser name, if you will, that these sort of um, these topics wouldn't necessarily be brought up?
4: I think that'd still be a, a talking point if you have kind of a very, Maybe under the radar first season, and then you pick up the pace in the second season. I think Jack Eitken last year was a good example of that. How he built a team around him with Campos and had Jan Suman come in as uh, engineer with the team, or up from Formula Three. Uh, and that boosted the team and helped him to good results. And everyone took notice of him, and they didn't realize that Eitken's driving wasn't getting significantly better, but it was more all round as a better operation. And we've seen that with Schumacher that does stay with the same team every year with Premer. Uh, everyone knows him there that, you know, it's a family operation pretty much when you go up through Premer's ranks. And that certainly helps in a series like F2 when you have changes such as the new 18-inch tyres this year, where the kind of the material you have from your first season that you'd want to apply this year and build on that. If it's all been pushed out the window by new tyres, you've got a team that you're already very comfortable with and a setup that you're very comfortable with, that you can then work from that. And I think more importantly as well is, even when he hasn't been winning, Schumacher's made the podium end four times this year, and the only other people who have even done that once, I believe, are Christian Lundgaard and Jack Eiken, and neither of them included wins during those weekends. So it's even when he's not winning, he's racking up points in a way no one else is. And that's ultimately what you title.
0: Yeah, certainly. I want, I want to bring Jack in um, again, because as, as you mentioned earlier, uh is a very family run sort of operation and it's got that, that sort of feel to it. Do you think that that would put him in um, good stead in, in a team like Alfa Romeo going forward? And how do you rate um, Schumacher's overall sort of F1 credibility, if you will?
1: Uh, I, th- I think it, I think um, well, just touching briefly on the last question. I think it's a it's a it's a blend of both. You've got the fact that Mick probably gets priority over some, or, or has had priority over some very good teammates in in his in his whole career. I'm talking about now, not just F2, um, and obviously the you know, his name has helped him. There's no doubt about that in any way, shape or form. You know, he's he's had a um, in terms of budget, in terms of you know being noted, being being sort of um you know well received by the press and, and and people just kind of following his career and knowing who he is you know all that has been um you know helped by his surname, but at the same time he's had to race with it um in a in a very difficult period where you know we all know what's what's going on with michael and he gets asked um or or he did went really early in his career he used to get asked some really difficult questions from the from the German tabloids and stuff like that so you know it's not all um you know it's not all swing it's not all um it's not all clouds and uh, and sunshine for Mick. He has a, a very difficult time of it sometimes. So I think it levels out, you know, obviously he has had preferential treatment in the past, but also he has to race under a, a massive amount of pressure. And, you know, just going going on to your question, Craig, I think, um, you know, Premier is quite family orientated and obviously um, just by definition that the team passed down through through generations and that in, in that sense it is family orientated. But at the same time, um, you know, it's got a, a very credible history of creating some some fantastic drivers, or at least maybe creating. Uh, harsh because some of the drivers you get to, uh, you know, F two level are already you know pretty much ready for Formula One or, or there or thereabouts. But Prem has honed a lot of very good drivers. You know, re- just looking at recently, you've got Leclerc and, and Gasly and some some people at, and, and Stroll, who've come through their system. And you know, Stroll's quite a good example where. Um, you know the family name comes into it and you know he's he's well watched people keeping a close eye on him and there's a lot of pressure on him and Premier used to training drivers in that situation and, and getting the best out of them in that situation so I'd, I I do take the point that obviously it's a you know it's a family run team and, and Mick's been shielded well looked after um, you know everything's prepared for him very well and you know he just has to turn up and do the job but at the same time you know Premier uh, instilling. The, the kind of professionalism in him that they they know he will need to be in Formula One. And, you know, I think premier are well-respected throughout Formula One. They're very highly thought of by all of the Formula One teams for for the preparation that they offer. So I think Mick's going in very well prepared. Um, I think he, you know, he's quite, um, he's quite old school in many ways. Like he likes to watch video rather than paying too much time, you know, attention to the simulator. Obviously he does his pre-event simulator and, um, you know the Delara kind, the, the the proper stuff. But you know he's not got a, a rig at home, or at least he hadn't last time I I, I heard about it. Um, he he likes to watch videos, quite center like in in that respect. Like likes to break down some YouTube or break down some older uh, DVDs. He probably hasn't got any VHSs. He's not that old, but um, just, that's just for me and Craig that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think um, he, he's quite old school in his approach and. He's, he's spent his whole career with a spotlight on him. He knows exactly what pressure's like and it, it, that's not going to be a surprise to him when he gets to Formula 1. It's just going to be, um, the question. just going to be there over how quickly he can get up to speed. And, you know, as as uh, you asked Elliot and as Elliot quite rightly pointed out, he's had a bit of a history of not always getting up to speed, you know, particularly quickly in his first year. But, you know, we've seen that from other F2 drivers who've graduated to Formula 1 and they've been okay. So, you know, it's uh, it's time to, I really think it's time to just put him in now and find out because, there was talks ongoing last year about putting Mick in, in the alpha and obviously that didn't happen in the end. Um, Giovinazzi had a very strong second half of the season uh, and 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 basically didn't really give Alpha Romeo a decision. They had to stick with him. But obviously Giovinazzi performing quite badly against uh, Raikkonen in, in terms of comparison. And that's not where Giovinazzi needed to be this year. He needed to be outperforming Raikkonen. You know, comfortably to to keep that seat, I think. So, I think it's um, it's a no brainer for Alpha, and it's a no brainer just to get Mick in there now and see what he can do. Mm.
0: So, who do we expect to be lining up alongside Schumacher in 2021 at Alpha? It's almost sort of like a bit of a so sort of a bit of an irony of uh, him lining up against Kimi Raikkonen, who essentially uh, kind of forced his dad out, out of Ferrari back in 2000 and uh, 2006, 2007. Um, and I think the final point that I want to bring up is um, the obviously the, the current situation has, has changed the atmosphere in, in the Formula 2 paddock somewhat in that um, there are obviously no no people loitering around, well, not as many people loitering around in the paddock. And I, I suspect that that might actually make things a little bit easier for Mick because he hasn't necessarily got the, the same sort of buzz around him that he would have necessarily have had um, last year, for example, in that. He's only speaking to, to people occasionally rather than being bombarded uh, on a regular basis by by people like yourself, Jack, or or, or in in the normal circumstance, people like myself or, or Josh.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, well, in that sense, Mick's a, a very different animal to the rest of the Formula 2 paddock. He's not someone you can just go and knock on the door and uh, head into the uh, motorhome and have a chat to. He's not that kind of... Uh, it, you know it's not that kind of set up and you know as i mentioned before he's been asked some very difficult questions in his career and been put under the limelight and you know um uh, there's been a history of uh, some 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 bad questions asked to him really and some some poor journalism done um you know in germany and sometimes in europe but mostly mostly early in his career when he was in germany and i think i'm you know i'm not blaming that totally but i think that put um it put Schumacher's people on alert. And since then, he's been, you know, quite well locked down. Um, you know, the Premier issue quotes after the race and stuff like that, and, um, you know, mix in the press conferences. And anytime anything significant happens, they usually hold a press conference, but he's not someone that you just go and speak to after the race like you might with many of the other drivers. So, yeah, I think, um, I think he's probably the person in the paddock who's been least affected by not having any journalists around because he was so, uh, so untouched in that sense beforehand. But, yeah, I mean, um, what was the first part of your question, Craig? It was so long ago, now I've been talking so long <laughs> that I've forgotten what the first part was. I've I've kind of forgotten about it as well, to be honest. Um,
4: Who's in the Alfa Romeo suit next to Schumer? That's it. There yeah. we go.
1: There we go. Elliot's listening. Elliot's paying attention. There we go. I've uh, I've ticked that box now. Someone's paying attention. Um, yeah, I think I think Raikkonen will be there next year. Personally, um, that's not from anyone inside the team telling me. I'm not going to pretend that I've got a, a source inside Alfa Romeo at the moment because I don't. But um, I think I'll keep him on for another year. Um, I do think it's quite interesting that synergy that we're talking about, Craig. With uh, oh, I hate that word. That's awful. I'm never using that word ever again. <laughs> um, the, the, the link between um, Michael and uh, and Kimmy and and Mick coming in there just at the end of of Kimmy's career is quite interesting. But I don't think he'd be replacing Kimmy. I think um, it makes perfect sense to keep Kimmy in there. Um, you know, he's. The perfect person who's got his own unique relationship with the press. So if anyone's going to teach Mick that side of things, then that's going to be Kimi. Um, and I think Mick'll have a lot to learn off uh, someone. Well, he's the most experienced Grand Prix driver ever, isn't he? So um, you know there'll be a lot to um, a lot to feed off Kimi there. And I think behind the scenes Kimmy's a very different animal to the one that we see and um, the person who's only got two word answers to questions I think it would be very helpful to to make in his future and that'll be within Kimmy's interest as well so yeah I, I think those two will, will line up alongside each other and uh, and and that'll be that mm-hmm.
0: yep I, I think now's a good time to move on to uh, the stuff that we're going to discuss and that is Callum Eyelott, Um second in the championship 169 points Three wins this season uh won the first race of the season and took a, a fantastic one at silverstone as well and added to that with a sprint race win at monza um although it didn't quite go according to plan there i think it's safe to say that ilot has made perhaps one two well one or two too many mistakes this season um he's the car a couple of times which are mistakes although unfortunate ones and that that infamous spin at silverstone uh it was very, very costly indeed. So I want to bring Bethany in because we haven't spoken to Bethany yet. Um, you've been following Callum's career uh, quite a bit. So do you think that Callum is starting to squander away chances of winning the championship with with some of these high profile waivers?
2: I don't know if he's maybe started doing that. I think I'm not going to say he's been consistently making mistakes, but I don't think they're they're not new. Like Silverstone, it feels like ages ago now that he lost, pretty much lost the race win at Silverstone. And he's, he's made mistakes quite a few times through his career. So he's not new to making mistakes, but it just seems like now he's, um, he's learned how to recover from them, which is really important because even the best drivers make mistakes. And if you're just going to sit at the back of the field or crash into a wall, once you make a mistake, then there's no, that's the difference between a good driver and a great driver, is that a great driver can recover from that. And he really has. I, I like you say, I've been watching his career all along. And people talk about Schumacher being in motorsport for a long time and not being recognised but Callum has been in most Callum has been in junior series for ages he did come into Formula 3 straight from karting um European Formula 3 straight from car- karting so it's not it do, it's not quite as bad as it looks in that he's been in top level junior series for a long time but he didn't do anything before that but he has been there for a long time and he hasn't really always gotten the results that you might expect from somebody under the Ferrari banner. But this year, I think, it's, um, he's really shown why Ferrari have kept him around for however long they have. And I'm really glad they have because he's really <laughs> proven himself and he's earned what he's got. But at the same time, if he does continue to kind of throw away the results and drop any further back I don't really see him dropping any further down the championship board really. But if he does then this is his last shot, I see it as if he doesn't get into if he doesn't get into Formula One this year, then it's not gonna be another year in Formula Two for him. It's either going to be down the Super Formula esque route or doing something house
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh jack what did you make of uh of callum a during your time um and are you surprised that he became um a front runner this year and has been unquestionably the the quickest driver over one lap
1: uh i I've, I've not got a whole lot more to add because i think bethany did a fantastic job of kind of summing callum up really but i think maybe the one positive side on things is that he's shown he can reinvent himself continuously. Um, So like, if you look at his first few years in in F3, he basically had a reputation for being absolutely rapid, but a little bit kind of uh, risky in wheel to wheel combat. So, you know, he'd quite often be pretty high up the order or retire. Um, And he kind of acknowledged that at the end of, uh, when would it have been? 2017. Um, so when he went into GP3 in 2018 with ART, he he knew he needed to be more consistent when it came to to battling with others. And you know he came up against some some very strong drivers and Jake Hughes, who was already you know very experienced at that point. Um, obviously, Antoine, we know what he went on to do and and won the championship. You know, pretty uh, pretty comfortably in the end. And then we've got Nikita Mazapan who you know, is is one of the most aggressive drivers in, in junior single-seaters full stop. So, you know, Callum, you know, had a a very difficult group of teammates there, but went into that season recognising that he'd been probably a bit too inconsistent in F3 and had been trying to win the championship every time he, you know, well, trying to win every single race and, and, and be the fastest on every single lap of, of the whole calendar. And, you know, it just does, obviously, it doesn't work like that. And I think in GP3 with ART, he probably went a little bit too far the wrong way and was too, conservative in you know after that so he kind of learned his lessons but went too far the wrong way um, and then obviously last season um, running with the Sauber junior team or or Charousse as it was obviously behind the scenes I think they got a lot of things wrong that year and I think uh, Callum and Juan uh, Manuel both showed the, the, the pace that the car had on any given weekend but obviously weren't able to uh, keep the tyres alive for long enough to to Compete with the big teams, and and that was obviously a, a pretty difficult season for 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 those guys. But you know, I think coming into this season, I expected him to be at the front because you know you and I, Virtuosi, you know, a phenomenal team, have been around since forever. Um, you know, run drivers like Juan Pablo Montoya in their junior careers, and you know that their, their CV is 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 pretty unbelievable. And you know, the only question mark for me this year was always going to be the tires and how much that mixed the the order up, and whether whether Virtuosi was still going to be one of those you know, leading teams, you know, after that, but they've they've proven they've got the car. I think Joe's had a really uh, inconsistent season, but has the most fastest laps of any driver, which is probably a reflection of the fact that he usually goes on to a different strategy or is um, you know, kind of pushed aside by um not quite performing to the level he's needed to this season. But it shows the pace of the the car is there. And, you know, I think I think honestly, I think um I didn't think uh, Callum was going to get the FP one based on um you know, kind of the the championship falling apart a little bit this season in F2. But the fact that he's got the FP1 makes me think that Ferrari have have seen enough that they think he's worth a chance. So if he can perform over the, past, over the next few rounds, um, you know, as Bethany said, he's basically been with Ferrari forever now. And if they wanted to get rid of him, it would have been pretty easy. You know, he's not a driver who brings, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds to the table. Um, so if Ferrari wanted to move him aside, it really wouldn't have been that difficult. And they've kept him on, they've stuck with him it's not been an easy relationship by any means um, in, in either direction. Um, but I think, you know, they've come together and the fact that he's, that he's got this FP1 after some of the mistakes we've already talked about on this podcast, um, that shows me that Ferrari really do rate him and, and, and do believe in him as much as, um, as much as possible. And I think he just needs to, he needs to deliver in the coming rounds and, and beat Schumacher as the title. And then he, he really gives Ferrari a difficult decision to make then. Mm, certainly. So, in the in the hypothetical
0: scenario that he does beat Schumacher to the championship, do you see him leapfrogging Schumacher as the the number one choice for that second Alpha Romeo seat, or do you see him possibly popping up full time at Haas next season?
1: I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? But anyone who's watched the the Netflix documentary on Formula One knows that it's about time Haas changed its line lineup. It's getting a bit. Uh you know it's it's make it's going to make the third season of netflix boring if they keep the same lineup i think they've got they've got to change it up now um but yeah i think um i think if Callum wins the championship then i think Haas will give him a gamble uh, i just i just can't see a scenario Craig, where they don't promote Mix to f1 next year i just really can't see any scenario and i think it's just a, a matter of where they put him and i think it'll be alfa romeo i think that seat's nailed on um so with Callum, it's whether Haas are willing to take on a Ferrari driver, and if they want Callum, um, you know Haas have spent uh, quite a few years now with two peaky drivers who are capable of phenomenal things, but both, you know, Kevin can be really uh, uh, over aggressive and sometimes make silly areas and. You know Grosjean, we don't need to talk about at, at great length because everyone knows his career history. So, are Haas really want to going to gamble on a driver with incredible upside, but one who has proven to be inconsistent through his junior career. You know that's a difficult decision, and Jean Haas makes his decisions based on um, you know the fact that the team's a business. So, there's no uh, there's no fairy tale promote this driver into Formula One with Haas. It's uh, you know who's going to give us the best results and who's the best decision as a as a business. So. Um, if if Callum can persuade them in the FP ones, and we've seen this before, um, you know, McLaren had a really difficult decision to make whether they promoted Lando Norris after the 2018 season, um, and he convinced them in the FP ones that he did towards the end of the year while he was balancing that against F2, that he was the man that should get the seat, and they promoted him, and, and you know, look how well that that one's worked out. So. Um, you know, it could be a similar situation for Callum. You know, if he can overturn Schumacher and he proves to Haas that he's got the ability, he gives the correct feedback, he's a safe pair of hands in the car, um, he, he can deliver the lap time consistently, then there's no reason why they why, why they wouldn't go for him. I guess.
0: Mm. Yeah, you bring up some really good points there. Um, I want to get.
2: Uh, well, he needs to um, get some PowerPoint lessons from George, surely.
0: Well. Oh every single driver should have a PowerPoint presentation on hand. I, I think when they go into into these discussions over their over their futures. Um, but Josh, I, I want to bring you in because um, I want to get your views on on Callum and what what qualities he would bring to Haas and whether he would uh, necessarily be an upgrade on Magnuson and Grosjean.
3: Yeah, I definitely think he, he would be. He's, he's faced a lot of challenges, you know, throughout his career. Um, as it's already been mentioned, you know, he came in uh, very, very young to Formula 3, straight out of karting, uh, was with Red Bull, got dropped after a difficult year, but bounced back in very, very good fashion in 2016, was, was very, very fast there in Formula 3 as well in, in 2017. Probably one of the most sort of impressive moments, um, as Jack will know, was, was last year at Monza after the, you know, horrific, horrific events of Spa. Um, to come to Monza and and stick that car on pole position for the first time was was really really impressive, um, and I think that kind of showed the the resilience that he has and the way that he's just able to to continuously sort of bounce back from from hardship and and from challenges. So yeah, he would be a great asset to Haas uh, in Formula One. I think um, F1 wise, they're probably going to announce Schumacher before the Bahrain rounds. I think that kind of makes sense from the standpoint then. It won't really matter what happens in those final two rounds, if Schumacher wins the title or not. Um, that would firm up the plans after he's had his uh, FP1 run. But again, that's just purely based on uh, what I think might happen. No uh, no actual knowledge there. Uh, in terms of F1 testing as well, obviously Callum did have a, a test debut last year after the Spanish Grand Prix uh, with Alfa Romeo, and he had quite a sort of high-profile crash there. Um, so hopefully this one uh, on Friday will go better. We've seen this from drivers in the past. I think it was Giovinazzi who had a a couple of crashes um, before making his F1 debut, and that arguably uh, delayed his debut. Um, So I'm hoping it won't be the same for Eilot. And uh, he's definitely, I think, a very different driver to to the driver we saw in Spain last year. So, yeah, it'll be good to see him in the car, and I think he he definitely deserves a a, a graduation a a seat next year um, because he's just been, you know, one of the fastest drivers. His his pure pace has been so impressive. um, Over one lap, but also in the races, I mean, Look at the Silverstone round, for example. I mean, both Silverstone rounds, he was just incredibly quick. Um, has really good racecraft as well. So I'd like to see him um, in Formula One. Uh, but I think that one really could go either way. Schumacher, for me, is nailed on. But with I Lock, I'm, I'm really not sure what's for me. I
1: yeah. Think 56,
0: uh, I
3: do wonder whether uh, the backing factor might come
0: into play as well with, with Haas. Um, obviously, there are other other drivers in in Formula Two, um, for example, who who are perhaps better backed than than lot when it comes to to possibly securing a, a seat with Haas next season. Some not even attached to to junior programs, but just touching um, on on the whole speed factor, he, I, I think lot is probably the driver with the most impressive single drive this year, and that was at Monza. Um, if you exclude his uh, his mistake in the pits, where he well after that after that mistake he went from stone dead last, I think it was twenty first, and he he just absolutely carved his way through the field right up into sixth. So that that does show that in terms of wheel to wheel combat, he has definitely improved. Um, and it, it, there there have been very few. Sort of mistakes actually in within combat this this season. Um, whether that's down to uh, the outright speed of the UNI and I virtuosi package or not, um, that's debatable. But I, I think um, ILOT has definitely improved in wheel to wheel combat. Um, so we, we've spoken about the the two drivers here in the second season. Um, let's talk about a rookie, um, one who sits fifth in the championship. Uh, at, at this point and is becoming a bit more of a, of a remote um, shot at the championship after a very, very impressive opening couple of rounds. And that's Robert uh, Robert Schwartzman, uh, the reigning FIA Formula 3 champion, um, took two brilliant feature race wins earlier in the year. Excuse me. Um, one at the Red Bull ring in the wet, uh, which was somewhat fortuitous in that he inherited the lead after radio issues for Yuki Tsunoda. And at the Hungara ring, where he capitalised on the alternative strategy to absolutely muller the field um, to take a brilliant win there. Now, my my big problem with Schwartzman this season has been his qualifying. He hasn't looked particularly effective over one lap, um, especially in comparison to a lot of the the championship rivals. So he has had to to kind of utilise the alternative strategy on a number of occasions this year. So, Jack... Uh, first question I want to put to you is: uh, Do you think that a second year in Formula Two is the best route for Schwartzman at this point?
1: I definitely think uh, a second year would be better for him. Um, not because he doesn't have the talent to go to Formula One, but I think he's really, uh, really lacked that kind of first year that, that Callum and Mick had to really learn everything about the car. And you know, things have changed with the setup and stuff this year, based on you know the tires, the wheels changing, but. I think uh, just learning some of the processes, um, you know, getting a bit of a grip of what uh, what the car's like to drive. I think, um, you know, obviously halfway through the season or, or so, you'd like to think Robert's uh, up to speed with that. Um, but yeah, I think, um, well, he's just not been consistent enough, basically. Uh, while Callum and Mick have, have scored very well, um, he's. The third, he's third in laps completed out of the championship contenders you mentioned. Does anyone know who's first, by the way? Because this is my favourite stat from F two this year. Oh, that's a that's a very good question.
4: That, 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 isn't it Delatraz of people who are still in title contention?
1: Correct, Elliot. Yeah, Delatraz and Daravala are tied at 541 laps completed, with Pedro P K and Dan Ticktum closely behind. So, in the championship of laps completed, Mick seventh. Callum's 10th and Schwartzman's 12th so on that basis I think we should you know rip up the uh, Formula One drives for them next year and Daravala and Delisraz should get the Haas and uh, Alfa Romeo seats based on that. (laughs) Well (laughs) Elliot was right. So, that's what he meant. He meant yeah, going, going you. back to Robert I think um, you know his his first F3 season was absolutely stellar um, you know really adapted well to the Pirellis against a, a really difficult teammate and Marcus Armstrong I think um, Marcus is one of the most impressive drivers over one lap or just in terms of general pace uh, you know I watched while I was covering uh, junior single-seaters I think when he's on it, it, I don't think there's anyone as good as him that that I've covered really Um well, especially, you know, in this field, I mean, um, of the drivers that I've covered in this field. Um, but obviously he's had a terrible season and that's probably another podcast to in itself, because you'll probably talk about that for a, another hour and a half. But Robert obviously showed really well against him. Um, you know, it was the first year of the, the FIA 3 coming into coming into existence and and just dominated that, really did a fantastic job. Um you know, I think probably two points in the year. I could probably mark him down for the the, the Budapest incident with Dragovic, um, you know, was, was a little bit silly. But in, in saying that, he learned a lot from that and actually performed better after it. So in many ways, you could say, you know, it was a good thing that it happened and didn't cost him that many points. So um, a learning experience. But yeah, obviously we've seen this year, he's he struggled a little bit to be as consistent as the other two. Um, you know, I've, I think the qualifying, I think uh, I, 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 I'm... I've kind of looked into it, to be honest, and I'm not sure he's much worse. I, I know um, he's he's lacked the, probably lacked the qualifying peak that we've seen from the other two. Um, but quite a few instances earlier in the year where he got traffic and, you know, sometimes that's the driver's fault. Sometimes it's the team's fault for where they release the driver and where they put them out on the track. So, um, you know, that could be either way. You know, it might be a markdown for Schwarzman in certain cases. And, you know, without going back to each individual qualifying lap, it's quite difficult to talk about those specifically. But I think in the first half of the season, um let's say, first third of the season. I think he really suffered with traffic and, and turning the tyres on at the same time and a combination of the two really cost him. But I think he's been too bad since. Um, it's it's more been his race performance, hasn't it, since then that's that's really let him down. But, you know, I think the year the in F3 showed his ability. I think a second season of F2 will convince everyone that he's he's good enough to be in F1 and and he'll make it. I think, you know, he's obviously gone through a lot of personal hardship, which is not an excuse for his performance, but... You know, losing his father obviously affected him very, very strongly. Um, someone who uh, he always wanted at the track with him and, um, you know, someone to be there and um, experience that with him. And, you know, he's gone through a lot of ups and downs, you know, um, at one point thought his career was going to end. Yeah. SMP and Ferrari have really bailed him out and helped him out in different championships and and made that sort of international racing dream come true for him. And his, his dad was a big part of that. So, um much like Leclerc, you know, losing his his father in his you know final F two season, it's uh, uh, a horrendous thing that you would never want it to happen to anyone. Um, and, and Robert's obviously dealing with that in the background of trying to fight against uh, you know really unpredictable F two championship. So it's been a very difficult year for him. He's had a lot thrown at him. Um, you know, being a, a teammate of a Schumacher can't be an easy thing or, or hasn't been an easy thing in the past for other drivers. Um, so I can't imagine that's been, you know, a, a particularly positive thing for Robert. Um, so maybe next year, you know, if he sticks with Prema and um, is is the focal point of the team, you know, he's he's really going to show what he can do.
0: Mm, yeah, uh, definitely agree uh, with, with all of that there. Elliot, um, fifth in the championship. That's got to be an impressive run, for a, for a rookie, whichever way you look at it, surely. Um, do you think that if he does do a second year, is out and out title favourite from the off?
4: Oh yeah, I would think he'd be title favourite if he stayed with Kramer. And I think whichever driver they would bring in to the team alongside him, Schwartzman would get some kind of preferential treatment. But I do think he's actually the most complete driver of the three of them at the moment. And I'd I'd more likely see Schwartzman in Alfa Romeo seat or possibly a Haas seat, than I'd say Islet in F1. Uh, obviously, he's got personal support. He's got, well, he's had a very good rookie season compared to his rivals. And I think looking at the past few years since they've joined Ferrari, it took longer for Islet to change or reinvent himself, as, as Jack said. Because I remember when he was in F3, he, he always expected too much of the car and rather famously crashed out the lead at Poe, which, you know, on his own. And then I think, it, like Jack said, GP3, he kind of tried going the opposite direction and didn't work. With Schwartzman, after working with like uh, Formula Medicine and like Dr. Ciccarelli and that, I think at the end of his Euro Cup season, he was absolutely on it. Went into European F3, took a well while to progress, but by the end of the first season, he was absolutely on it. Went up to f F3, uh, you know, got used to those Pirelli tyres and especially the reverse grid style racing, because that wasn't something that featured in previous series he competed in. And he mastered that within a season. And I think he's done the same this year. But if we're already saying Schumacher is an F1 uh, ready driver and so is Eilert, then Schwarzman is, you know, he's competing against basically F1 ready drivers. So I think Schwartzman is also in line for an F1 seat for next year and doesn't really have much to gain by doing another season in F2. And I, I know he obviously lost his father during this time, but he does have, Very influential Russian backers that would no doubt love to see him in an F1 car next year.
0: Mm. So realistically, where does he end up? Um, Is he potentially is there you know potential for an all Ferrari junior lineup at Haas next year possibly?
4: Um, Not Haas. I think we're going to start in his management style and either oddly not going off when he's been at Haas, but previous F1 teams. He almost wants less work to do with those drivers because obviously it's run as a business model as well. And I don't think having a driver like Eilerton at Haas is really going to benefit the team if alongside Magnussen or Grosjean because you know he's already working hard to get the best out of Magnussen. So having to do that and also help a rookie in that team isn't going to help. Whereas I think Schwartzman's already got what he requires to kind of keep his head down and. and get used to the F1 world within a season. Alfa Romeo, I think, would be for Islet to turn up because when the Sauber Sauber Junior team last year wasn't actually connected to the Ferrari Driver Academy in any way, and yes, obviously the two Formula 2 drivers at Chiru were just kind of plastered with Sauber logos, but most of Islet's simulator work, I think he did at Henwill rather than um, over in Italy. So he has kind of strong links to Sauber already, and obviously he drove for ART Grand Prix and GP3, so there's still the kind of the Frederick Vaza links there. And Vaza, I don't think he's run two young drivers together really since Kobayashi and Perez that were very kind of pushy. And Perez obviously a very underdog story in that sense, but I think it make more sense you had Schumacher and and Alfa Romeo, and you put in Schwartzman at Haas alongside Magnussen or Grosjean. That that would be my better way of seeing it.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you're leaving uh, Sergio Perez and Nico Hulkenberg on, on the sidelines. By that, that's going to be that's going to be controversial. You you do realise, Elliot?
4: Well, Perez Perez doesn't. Oh, how would I describe it? I mean, he spent most of his childhood in Europe, basically living on top of a restaurant because uh, he came over here on his own, and he's always been kind of obviously forced became Race racing point. His job's always been on the edge wherever he's been. It's never been as comfortable as it's really looked on the outside, and I think he'd just lost some a bit more. He'd have a happier life, almost dare I say it, if he does something like McLaren IndyCar or goes off and tries something new for one year, and then tries coming back to F1 the year after. It's not going to hurt him. And Hulkenberg, he's you know there's more benefit for Hulkenberg to get a reserve role. I know he says he doesn't want to, but reserve role at Mercedes or McLaren, you never know what's going to happen. You might end up being called again one day, like he did this year.
0: Mm-hmm. uh so i think it's time to talk about a fourth driver they're going to mention um because of the the news this week or last week um that honda is, is pulling out of f1 again um so elliot i want to ask you first um what does this mean for the honda juniors uh possibly coming over to europe in the future does that signal the end of that
4: i don't think it will um because there's a, there's a rivalry between Honda and Toyota in Japan. And we had the first Japanese F4 round this weekend. And for the first time in six years, there was no Honda presence on the grid at all. You normally have a Honda Formula Dream Project team. And in its place was Toyota Kazoo Racing Driving School. And we've seen kind of similar things in Super Formula as well, where Toyota is investing. Honda is looking at international projects. Um, not necessarily in Formula 1 but in, in other areas of motorsport and hence in French F4 they've sent Ren Sato and Takimara Iwasa there this year and they're doing very well, they're 1-2 in the championship so Yuki Tsunoda who's in Formula 2 and is Honda's junior as well as Red Bull's junior I don't think he's going to be affected by this at all because they've put all this money to bring him up to F2 and done it very quickly as well he did Euro Formula and F3 last year and he was in Japanese F4 the year before they're not just going to end that kind of investment and support into such a young driver as well when he's on the you know the very cusp of F1. Uh, but there are other kind of indications here that there's a Japanese style of doing things and it's very hierarchical. And when they have less influence on these processes in junior single-seater teams, and I did see this a bit at uh, Motorpark in Euroformula last year, the drivers adapt to the European style quicker. So took a quite a while to get used to that but once he was like fully involved in it it was a little easier and with I think if Japan does focus it more on going international now rather than supporting talent domestically then those drivers will actually adapt to Europe quicker and all round you're going to see more Japanese talents rise at the ladder because you know historically apart from Takuma Sato there's this old way of old saying of like Japanese drivers come over they feel a bit kind of homesick they don't get used to it and that's mostly because the idea is you send them off, make them successful, and then bring them back to Japan. And that, I think, the strategy there is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's
0: a, that's a, that's some really really good insight, um, Jack. What do you make of Sonoda? And do you think that um, Honda pulling out of F one kind of puts a bit more pressure on on Honda to to get him into a Honda powered F one car for for twenty twenty one because that'll be the the only chance that that will happen? Or do you think that um, there'll be less pressure from Honda to to put, to elevate him into say an alpha Tauri seat next season.
1: Uh, well, I think there's a few things to consider. I think um, I think Yuki's English was worse than most Japanese drivers that come over to Europe. Um, I think it was quite a late yeah. decision to send him over when he did the year with Yenzer. And then instead of living in Milton Keynes like most of the Japanese drivers that come over have in the past few years, he was in he was in Switzerland um, with an English trainer. So. He came it. so where most of them when the drivers come over to Milton Keynes, quite often there's one or two of them together, and they've at least you know got each other to, um, to bounce off and thinking of like Makino and Fukuzumi in 20, 2018, um, that kind of thing. And you know Sonoda didn't have that. Um, he had an English trainer while he was in Switzerland um, in, in 2019, but that's about it. So he was uh, quite at home in the mountains, which felt quite at home to him. Um, you know, quite like the area and enjoyed being in Switzerland, but didn't have that kind of um, acclimatisation to kind of like, um, you know, British city life or anything like that, that some of the other Japanese drivers might have got. Um, so I think his his experience of adapted so far to to racing in Europe has probably been quite a bit different to, to the other Japanese drivers. Um, and also very important to remember that he's a Red Bull junior as much as he is a Honda junior. So I think Red Bull are going to be, um, you know, very keen to, to have Yuki on its books, I think he's done enough to prove that he's good enough to be considered, regardless of the fact that he's Honda. You know, I think everyone, everyone just thinks of Yuki as a Honda, a Honda driver, a Honda junior, um, and and he's there because Honda want a Japanese driver in Formula One, and that's his whole existence in in Europe and the whole reason he competes. and And for me, he's he's better than that. I think I think Red Bull wants him on the books. I Think he's a very talented young driver, and I think. You know they consider him as a, a future F1 pro- prospect, regardless of of Honda being there or not. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting 12 months for for UK to find out what happens. I think Red Bull, you know, as far as I know, are keen to keep him on and uh, keep him uh, keep him on their books. So you know we've seen the news on um, the race today that Honda are willing to kind of help Red Bull with an engine project post 2021 if that's what uh, Red Bull want to do. Um, so there's no reason why they can't work in unison to to help Yuki and, and both to to get you know an advantageous situation out of it. You know Honda will still want to see a Japanese driver in Formula One, regardless of whether it's with a Honda or not, because you know they they've put massive expense into uh, these programs in the past, and you know obviously the the benefit of that is that they've got you know a, the, the first Japanese driver into Formula One for for a long time. Um, but also I think they're. Um, you know they'll they'll take just as much pride of the fact that they've put him on the right path and you know played a massive part in his development. Um, you know, regardless of them not being there now. So um, yeah, take take all the points mentioned before. I think um, I think it's just going to be uh, one of those wait and see situations where we wait and find out where he finishes in the championship because um, I still don't think he's completely out of contention at Toro Rosso, um, but. I think that's probably kind of slipping away a little bit now, and it's going to be another season in F2. Um, but yeah, I think if you know if he continues to show the trend that he has, um, there's no reason why he won't be considered for for Red Bull in the future. Mm, yeah, 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 certainly.
0: I think it says a lot that, um, well, perhaps about how the the current drivers uh, Pierre Gasly and Kiviat Kvyat, a uh, performing at AlphaTauri, that the, a rookie sitting in third in the in the F two Championship is uh, not quite on the, on the cusp of a, of a straight promotion to Formula One yet. Um, I do think that uh, obviously Gasly has been absolutely phenomenal this year, but I think uh, Kvyat's performances uh, have been a little bit under under the radar. Um, but yeah, some very very good points brought up on Sonoda. Um, I think he's been absolutely brilliant at times this year I don't think he's quite got all of the ingredients there yet um, but there's definitely potential for that to be the case uh, very very soon if he if he does do another year in F2 um, a Tsunoda-Schwartzman battle possibly with a few other names mixed in there as well that's going to be an absolutely brilliant prospect I think um, but yeah it's a case of wait and see um, but I wouldn't be massively surprised if um if red bull do do take a punt there's a there's got to be some pressure to 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 vindicate the existence of the the red bull junior program as well because it's been a while since a a fully fledged red bull junior has been graduate has graduated in into the junior team when you when you exclude uh people like alexander albon being uh Picked up again, and Brendan Hartley being picked up again, and Danny Kiviat being picked up again, uh, and and so forth. So it, it has been
1: quite a while. Um, I think there's I think there's two things to to consider off what you said there, Craig. Is that the the whole Tauri situation is changing, and I think that's a bigger threat to Sonoda getting a seat than Honda pulling out because they're becoming much more like a sister team as opposed to a junior team, and they're being given. Um, you know let's say they're being given more of a you know a longer leash by red bull um you know putting more and more of their own things in place and becoming more and more of their own individual outfit and i think you know we've seen that with them sticking with kvyat and, and 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 gasly it looks like um you know i think they they're just becoming more of an independent operation and i think it's talked about this that they've talked about this recently that it's more of a move towards being a sister team than a junior team so that might be a bigger a bigger threat for him, but you mentioned him in, in the same breath as, as Sonoda there. And, you know, I think Sonoda in F3 in 2015 or, or 2016, you guys will know not a lot more about the, the, the numbers there. I'm pretty sure it was 2015 or 16, but, um, you know, Yuki's first season in cars was 2016 as well, but, you know, he did like, uh, you know, a few seasons in, uh, Japanese F4 and then was just like kind of thrown into Europe in, in, in at the deep end. So, um, you know, when you compare comparing relative performance, I think, um, you know, if Yuki can be in and around Schwartzman in a in an F two season, I think that's a you know a massive indication of uh, where Sonoda's at based on his um, experience. You know we all um, you know read the website and and know how um, how good Japanese single seaters are, but I think um, you know the standard of like kind of F four level um, you know I would think is higher in Europe and some of the drivers he's competed against probably not the standard of Europe. So um, in in general, I think. You know, Sonoda's got a lot of upside, and uh, if we're you know if we mention him in in the same breath as Schwartzman, then yeah, you know, he um, he got hired in an F three last year, but that was with uh, a Yenzer team that clearly you know wasn't up to take the the battle to Premier and, and the likes of. So, um, you know, I think uh, it, it, if you're mentioning him in the same breath as as uh, Schwartzman, Craig, I think that's a a massive positive for for Sonoda.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to get Josh's views as well on Sonoda. Um, and, w- and whether you think he he's is uh, going to step up next year or not, um, because we we seem to be quite divided on, on on this particular topic. So I want you to to break the deadlock,
3: Josh. Well, I agree with Jack that you know not having to live in Milton Keynes is probably a positive uh, for Yuki. Um, but in terms of his his promotion, um, you know, I think he is ready because he's shown he's able to adapt really really quickly. Uh, if he's thrown into Formula One next year, then I think he'd be completely fine. He's shown that in, in coming to Europe last year in Formula 3 and in Euro Formula Open. Uh, and then this year as well in F2, he stepped up, you know, really, really nicely. Has shown, you know, really, really good speed with Carlin, who are probably, you know, not the quickest outfit uh, out there. And yet, you know, he's third in the championship um, with a couple of brilliant wins. Uh, and really should have been another one, you know, in, in Austria at the start of the season. So, yeah, he's been he's been great. And I think it would be really nice to see him alongside Gasly um, at AlphaTauri next year. Annoyingly, you know, as we mentioned, Danny Kvyat has been quite good uh, recently. But I'm hoping that they'll give Sonoda a chance, regardless of his Red Bull links, regardless of his Honda links. Um, you know, for me, Yuki Tsunoda deserves promotion. And I think he'd be more than ready for it next year because he's shown previously that,
1: He's very, very good at uh, adapting and overcoming any sort of uh, inexperience. I'm sorry to add to uh, Josh's Milton Keynes hatred, but I think Yuki does actually live there now. It was his first season that he lived in Switzerland, but I think uh-huh. he's he's back in Milton Keynes now, so he's part of the uh, the Milton Keynes crew. Even more impressive <laughs> than for uh, <laughs> do well.
0: uh, Bethany, you had a you said you got a, a question to ask about Sonoda.
2: Yeah, well, it's more about. If he were to go to Torosa, or whatever they're called these days, you've said it about 15 times, but if he were to go to Alfa Tauri next year, is that a benefit being at a team, knowing that they're going to have a completely different engine manufacturer in in 2022? Or would it be more beneficial to hang back, do some reserve driver stuff, and then come in when the new engine does?
0: It's not just a new engine. It's a, it's a whole new package well, overall, yeah.
2: isn't it? But
4: yeah, I, I think that's a, next is, that's a good question. Next is, the ideal time. next is the ideal time to be a rookie because the 2021 car is pretty much the 2020 car. The team has a year of data on board already. And if you've got a new driver coming in, you've got so much more to prepare them with than you've ever had before in Formula 1. And that's only going to be a benefit, especially with a team which has an easier car to drive, objectively, than a, you know, an Afro Romeo or a Williams. So it makes more sense. It's easier knowing that you're going to have that change on the horizon because 2021 car, there is no change.
0: Mm. Uh, I don't know if Jack wants to to uh, interject with
1: anything on that one. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I think I think you're right, Elliot. I think the, the kind of basis of everything stays the same, but there's still a little bit of development allowed. Um but yeah, I think I think that I think the data point is important. I think it, it is a good time to be a rookie in that sense that you've got so much uh, so much data to jump in on there. And yeah, I think um, you know I think Sonoda. It's just whether you think he's ready or not, and if if he would benefit from another year of F two. And personally, I think he would. I think another year in Europe outside of Formula One would be you know really good for for Yuki because you know like I said, you know he's coming from a point where I don't think his um, you know his English was great and that's something he's had to learn. And, you know, we, we take it for granted as, as English speakers, but, you know, it's a second language for these guys and it's quite often difficult for them to learn. And we just expect them to, to, to speak it immediately. And it's just not that simple, especially coming from, you know, such a different language. So, um, you know, that's obviously, you know, it doesn't sound that important when you're just talking about it on a podcast, but when you consider how important feedback is and how each English speaker has a different type of feedback and a different quality of feedback from from their, you know, experience in the car, it's a massive thing because, you know, like I said, it's, 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 engineering is almost like speaking a language in itself. And there's some drivers who, um, you know, I'm not going to start reeling off uh, random drivers now, but there's, there's, there's definitely people that, you know, engineers who've worked with them over the years, credit their success how well they're able to communicate how they feel in the car and it's not necessarily because they know big words or they speak the queen's english it's just knowing how to communicate that properly but if you don't know the words to communicate it properly then it's obviously very difficult so um yeah it's a it's, it's a really big task and it's 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 something that's not just going to come overnight for for yuki and working with carlin is perfect because you know he's got a a real um you know kind of I don't want to play down Colin's professionalism, but they're you know they're a fun team. Uh, you know they 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 play loud loud dance music in the paddock, and um, you know it's 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 hard work all day, um, long hours. But as soon as you finish, you know it's time to have a bit of a laugh about things. I think I don't I don't, I don't think Trevor will mind me saying that. Um, so I think yeah. that's a really good atmosphere a, for you kids being for, for learning his English.
4: They have a great love for Japanese drivers as well because Takuma Sato is like. The, the driver who launched Carlin as an entity, and they have a great kind of debt to, I guess, Japan in that way. Especially when you see them with Japanese drivers in the paddock, there is a very much a kind of an adoration to them. They feel like they have a responsibility. Maybe that would be a better way of saying it.
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, well, us, uh, I think, plenty of time on on Formula Two for this week. Um, so that's whittle off everything else that's going on around the world, and there was a lot of rain. Um, I, I think it's safe to say, around around junior single-seater racing this weekend. Um, but first of all, FIA Formula 3 testing uh, got underway today, uh, and there's more tomorrow. We're recording on Monday. Um, Matteo Nini was quickest uh, in the morning session with Campos. Jack Doohan uh, topped the times in the afternoon session with Trident. Uh, Victor Martin, a uh, very, very highly anticipated uh, driver, uh, made his... Um, FIF3 debut as well. Um, Moving on to to goings on around the weekend, Uh, British F3 had four races at Snetterton and four different race winners. Uh, Bethany was there, but covering uh, something else, and uh, you can confirm it was very cold and very wet there, wasn't it?
2: It was very cold and very wet, and it couldn't make up its mind how wet it was. So some races started wet and then got dry, and then some races started Without rain, but still wet, and then got wetter. So it kind of been an easy race for any of those drivers.
0: Yeah, certainly. Uh, like watching the watching the streams, um, <laughs> you could you could just see the the walls of spray just kicking up into the air and blowing into 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 the distance, and it was quite remarkable. But Caden Frederick uh, and Kashmany, uh two championship, uh, two at the top of the championship, they they won the first and second races uh on on saturday while louis foster and ulice de paul um won the the races on sunday all of which were in the wet unsurprisingly um euro formula uh formula regional european and italian f4 were all at mugello which unsurprisingly was wet um lucas dunner and ben barnico um making a cameo appearance uh took took the victories there um and there'll be more on uh Euroformula and Ben Barnacote in the coming days. Hint, hint. Um, in Formula Regional at Mugello, uh, Arthur Leclerc was absolutely terrific in in the rain, um, including winning one of the races by carving his way through the field after making two pit stops and winning by 15 seconds. Um, and there'll be the, there's also news um, regarding a, a possible merger between Formula Regional and Formula Renault. Um, in the future, which uh, we'll go into uh, a debate on in the coming weeks. Um, an Italian F4, Andrea Rosso, Gabriele Bortoletto, and Gabriele Mini, um, we're, were on top in there. Some of those races were wet. Uh, French F4, you guessed, wet. Um, Ayuma, Owasa, Uw- uh, Rensato, and Owasa, uh, as mentioned before, uh, they, they won the races there. Uh, Japanese F4 got underway at Fuji. Um, those races were dry, um, believe it or not. Um, but the, uh, Reiji Hiraki won the, the first race of the season, uh, but Hibiki uh, Taira took uh, the, the other two race wins and established an early championship lead there. Over in America, which um, I'm sure this is the reason why Jack is here, here. Um, there were two champions crowned, um, in Formula Regional Americas and in USF4, um, runaway championship leaders throughout the whole year, uh, Lindus Lungvist and Hunter Yaney, um, clinched those championships respectively with three races to spare just to, to emphasize their dominance. Um, and that, that had, uh, rain affected, uh, conditions as well. Um, but we've got plenty of cool features coming up on the website, as I'm sure Elliot will be able to tell us about in a moment. But uh next weekend, we've got Formula Renault Euro Cup from Barcelona. Uh, National FF1600 um, has its title decider at Silverstone. Um, Indy Pro 2000 and USF 2000 have their penultimate rounds at New Jersey Motorsport Park. Uh, British Formula 4 is at Croft and Danish F4 is at Padborg Park. But Elliot, uh, round us off with... Talking about uh, the the features uh, and the 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 top secret uh, Euro Formula uh, Ben Barna coat uh, goings on.
4: Yeah, so uh, Ben's actually at FIA Formula Three testing today with Carlin. Um, he's usually testing McLaren sports cars, but he, he's been called up to single seaters. So he was supposed to be a second mystery guest for this week's podcast, but now I'm doing a second podcast of him on Wednesday, and I'm going to be chatting to him about basically why he's ended up racing single-seaters again and how he ended up winning at Miguelo as well, because it was a very impressive performance there. And to make up for my lack of presence at Miguelo, I'm going to be bringing more updates from the potential merger over this coming week. I've been in contact with a lot of teams and championship organizers and some very secretive people. And as well as that, we've got an interview with someone who did karting in the Yugoslav Republic. And... Uh, then became such an influential person in Eastern motorsport that they were given a like official medal uh, to recognize the changes they had made to the motorsport landscape. Um, but he's otherwise known as Milos Pavlovich, the GT driver. Uh, we've also got an interv- interviews with the Italian F4 title contenders because uh, they're all Italian this year, which is a, a rarity in the series. And Giancarlo Minardi, the famous F1 team boss, he kind of helps actually sport on that series. So we've got some input from him as well. And then rounding off the week, potentially we are going to have either a second IndyCar driver um, to talk to because we had Alex last week. Uh, Obviously, uh, there's two McLaren drivers in action. One of them was in their late 40s last week. Oliver Askew aged seriously. Uh, And then after that, we have a third and final feature potentially about the Krattschel Grand Prix. Now, this is a kind of Caribbean island. Uh, I think it's part of the Dutch Antilles. And International Formula 3000 held a non-championship race there in 1984 uh, for an unknown reason. But after that, Benioff was like, I'm going to try and add that to the F1 calendar. And I'm hopefully going to get a few drivers and town planners to kind of explain why the event happened and why it stopped happening after a single event.
0: Brilliant. I uh, can't wait to to read all that on the on the website. Uh, but huge thanks to, to Jack Benyon for, for joining us. Um, do check out the race uh, that is the hyphen race.com um hopefully we'll we'll bring you back um soon for for more uh formula two and hopefully uh some other stuff as well um but some road to indie for- news yeah yeah some road to indie news as well but mega thanks for for being here um josh bethany and elliot um as usual thanks for being here um all right, I'm going to go and make more tea. Um, but we'll be back next week with another Formula
2: Scout podcast. Adios. Bye. Goodbye.